Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I am joined, as always, by fellow co-host Joe Wolfon. What up, Cash? Well, a lot's up, actually. There is a lot going on around the NBA, none of which we're actually going to talk about today because we have a, a separate topic. But real quick off the top, I mean, I can run through a few things. There was 15 games, all 30 teams in action last night, so a ton of news coming out of that. No games today um, due to the American midterm elections, day off for the NBA. Let's see, random news points we can talk about. Kawhi, quote-unquote, really not a time frame for his return, according to Ty Lue. Anthony Davis potentially mad about his touches, at least second-half touches. Uh, the Wolves are sluggish enough to start the season that an assistant coach in what is usually a mundane halftime interview talked about the fact that they should not be having you know, issues when it comes to effort only a few weeks into the season. Even Austin Rivers talked about it with his Wolves teammates. 10% through the season, still some surprises in the standings. Warriors near the bottom. Jazz first place in the West. Some injuries around the league. Cam Johnson out. I mean, I guess to be determined based on whether the meniscus needs to be repaired or replaced. And James Harden out as well. So, Wolfon, before we get into the main topics of today's podcast, out of all those rapid-fire things I just listed off in the helter-skelter NBA right now, do any pique your interest the most that you feel we should talk about before we dive into other topics? Well, first off, I would like to ask for my first mulligan among my bold oh. predictions. Does, does this by any chance have anything to do with a Timberwolves assistant coach uh, in what is usually the mundane halftime interview saying his team... You know, not putting enough effort. Sucks and that can't ass. Happen. Yeah, that's what he wanted to say, is that they sucked ass. Yeah, I mean, no Gobert last night, I guess. But, like, ah, uh, I mean, it it, just, it doesn't look good. Like, they do not look synergistic at all. Granted, I probably should have anticipated that it was going to take a little bit of time and that they weren't going to click right off the bat, given the enormity of the, you know, literally of the player that they were trying to integrate and how differently they were going to have to play as a result, but it's looked bad. So yeah, would like a mulligan on that. I say we should each get one. Yeah, all right. Uh, so I'm using it on that and not on the Sixers because I'm I'm holding up some hope that the Sixers can can kind of get it together in spite of the Harden injury, which obviously is not great, especially when you're you're talking about a player who he had that hamstring injury and we saw what that did to him. And he came out this season looking good. Like, I think that I mentioned there were still some red flags with him in terms of not having the explosiveness, not really being able to beat guys off the bounce, not having that finishing step at the rim, like not really getting to the rim all that much. It was still very jump shot reliant, but but he was playing well. And then another lower body injury where he is, he, he can't really like do any kind of physical activity. Like that's, the lower body injuries are the worst, you know, especially for, I don't, I don't want to be callous, but like players like Harden who have a history of maybe not showing up in shape all the time. Yeah. Like we saw that, we, we've seen that with Zion in the past, right? Where it's like a, a lower body injury that prevents you from being able to run. I just worry about what that's going to mean for him once he gets back. While he's out, I don't worry about them like falling off a cliff now that Embiid's back. And especially like watching that Sixers game last night, Embiid looked great. Yeah, it's the best he's looked this season so far, by far. By far. Like, his defense, it was a completely different player, man. Like, yeah. those, that first handful of games, you know, he, he was playing in, like, a deep drop and not making any kind of impact on the ball, not really making an impact around the rim. And then he comes back last night, and he's, like, 
hard hedging and recovering. He's switching out on the perimeter and like bottling up Devin Booker and other Suns ball handlers, making quick hitting rotations on the back line. Like he looked so much better. So that that gives me a lot of confidence that they're going to be okay. And Maxi has looked good enough as a lead ball handler that I think they're going to be able to survive Harden's absence. My, my fear would be what Harden looks like when he gets back. Yeah, and then trying to kind of reintegrate him like back into the lineup and back into the offensive flow while he's also just trying to find his legs again and how that can kind of get messy. I mean, he's supposed to be out, what, a month? You figure he's back maybe early December. Like, it's it's obviously fine in the sense that they would still have, like, five months between figuring all that stuff out and when the playoffs start, when they really need him to and, and the team to be going. But definitely a couple more wrenches early in the season than you would like for a yeah. team with as many expectations and pressure on them as the Sixers. Yeah, they I, they need time to figure out the kind of division of labor between him and Maxi on offense, you know, in terms of yeah. pick and roll reps, ball handling reps. Like, it'll, on the one hand, be, you know, I don't want to say a blessing in disguise, but, like, for Maxi's sake, like, this will be his opportunity to have the ball in his hands a lot and prove that he can do it and develop some pick and roll chemistry with Embiid. But it's not going to really help in the big picture in terms of, okay, we have to figure out how we actually want to play on offense. So I don't know. We'll see. Uh, and then, you know, the Cam Johnson thing that they played the Suns last night. It's not a huge thing, I guess, but for a Suns team that was already playing without Jay Crowder yeah. and had we'll basically... Talk about- I was saying, I'm gonna, I got to make or miss yeah. for you later later in the episode. But no, continue. Continue your son's thought. Is your make or miss going to be about whether Jay Crowder can come back now that he'll be able to start for the Suns? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> That's, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that would seem like it would work out great for both parties, right? They can yeah. showcase him for a trade and, and ultimately maybe get him to where he wants to go. And in the meantime, he can start, which is what he wanted all along. But yeah, exactly. unless or until that happens, it's like, you know, Tory Craig starting at the four and losing that shooting element from that position. And Craig Cam Johnson was off to a great start this season too. He's just fits so perfectly into what they do offensively. And I think it's going to be very tough with Tory Craig trying to, trying to sop up those minutes instead. What I feel like might end up happening is they just roll out like a lot of three guard lineups with Paul Booker, Damian Lee, or like Paul Booker and Shamit and Mikkel Bridges at the four. That might be they might be too small, yeah. In those alignments, so yeah, uh, tough look for them. The uh, one last note there on the Sixers, I was thinking about last night. It's like I almost wonder if 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 you're of the belief at all that Doc Rivers was potentially hanging by a thread based on the way things started there. I almost wonder if the injuries to Embiid and now Harden might have saved his job in a sense, right? Because there is that built-in excuse of like, you know how. The expectations, at least in the short term, while these guys have been out, can't be as high as they usually would for a kind of finals championship or bust, whatever you want to call a team. And I do wonder if in the long run, like that might save his job, at least for like this season. If Maury and company look at it, it's like, okay, like we just got to let him ride it out till he gets all the guys back and then see what happens after that. That's, that's definitely possible. And yeah, if you look at how they played at the beginning of last season without... James Harden, you know, without Ben Simmons. Yeah. Uh, and granted, I mean, they had Seth Curry and Andre Drummond as well, who wound up going out in that trade. And those guys played really well for them. And, and PJ Tucker has been kind of a disappointment so far. DeAnthony Melton's come in and, and been awesome. Yeah. So I think they should be able to ride this out to, to a reasonably acceptable degree. 
Yeah. All right. So what we're actually going to do today, uh, all those news topics aside, is we're going to talk about, I guess, what we kind of consider the East's second tier. I don't know, East 1B. I don't know what you'd want to call it. Or at least second tier teams that we haven't talked about yet. We are both in agreement that the Boston Celtics, Cleveland Cavaliers, and Toronto Raptors, at least through the first you know two and a half, three weeks of the season, have somewhat separated themselves in terms of not the standings, but in performance as the next crop of teams after Milwaukee in the East. Now, since we last spoke, when we talked about Milwaukee and Atlanta, obviously Milwaukee has lost now to Atlanta, their first loss season, but they're still in first. But Atlanta's up there at seven and three, uh, have really turned things around since we talked about some of the things that were going wrong there. So you know, if you're a Hawks fan, apologies that we're not putting them in the second tier, even though they are there by the standings right now, but we've already talked about them. So today's going to be about the Celtics, Cavs, and Raptors. Before we get to that, we actually haven't recorded really since the Steve Nash firing. We were interrupted in our last recording by the news of Steve Nash's firing and said we'd touch on it, you know, in our next episode. We didn't end up getting around to recording until today. It's been about a week, actually, since Steve Nash was fired. Other stuff has happened since then. Kyrie Irving was suspended and has been given this kind of checklist of things to do in order for him to be reinstated. I believe uh, Jalen Brown, who's also a vice president of the Players Association, put out a statement yesterday saying, I can't remember if they said they are going, the PA is going to appeal that kind of like checklist of things he needs to do or if they're thinking about appealing, but I I think they're going to appeal. So that's all happened. Uh, Jacques Vaughn right now is the interim head coach again, while they, you know, either let him ride it out or wait for potentially Ime Udoka or whoever else is going to come in there. But we actually haven't had a chance to even spend a few minutes talking about this latest kind of Nets drama. So I know I've got a few minutes worth of things to say. We also want to keep it moving. <laughs> I bet you do. <laughs> but, but we also want to keep it moving. But I do, before I probably go off on uh, a rant that I may or may not regret later, I'll ask you, do you have anything new to add or just in general thoughts on this entire situation that you didn't have a week ago or that Nash's firing has brought up for you or anything like that? No, I mean, I think talking off air, we were both in agreement that we just feel relieved for Steve Nash to be out of that situation. It seems like they're maybe rethinking the Udoka thing because Mm -hmm. if they weren't, they probably would have announced the hiring already. Like, it seemed like when when Woj tweeted it out that it was more or less a done deal, right? And I think maybe they saw the backlash or sensed the backlash coming and reconsidered because of how bad the optics of that hiring would be. So I personally hope that they continue to reconsider and then just decide not to do it because it's insane to think that somebody who has been suspended for an entire season by his previous team could then just jump to another team and be coaching in the NBA like a few weeks after that year-long suspension came down without the public really having any idea. I mean, I guess some idea, right? We have some details from the reporting from Shans Charania about the incident, but like not really a whole lot of information about the nature uh, or the reason for the suspension. And like, I just think that would be such a bad look, especially given all of the bad looks that the Nets have already been dealing with. Yeah, and especially when the latest report uh, stemming from the suspension was that the investigation the, the investigation into Ime Odoka's reported relationship with a subordinate started with him uh, either sending or speaking, saying 
crude things to this subordinate before they even had this kind of relationship. Uh, the investigation found that's how it all started. So, um, like, even if you want to look at it as like, we don't have the whole picture, the latest updates and reports, they're not making it any better for Udoka. Like, they're not making it look any better for Udoka. In terms of the, uh, like, what you mentioned with the optics, and I agree, it seems like maybe they got cold feet or pulled back mm-hmm. a little based on the way that the report was received. But I will say, if it took them needing to actually see how the public responded to know how the public would respond to this, given yeah. the shitstorm that's been going around the nets anyway, then as an organization, they just have their head in the clouds. Like if, if they didn't realize this is how people would react to following up all of this with, oh, and by the way, we might hire Ime Udoka. They've got their heads in the clouds. And to be honest with you, I mean, yeah, they, like that fits because even if, even taking Kyrie out of it, even if you like just listen to the Kevin Durant talk, there's like a whole head in the clouds kind of thing there where, you know, look, I, I actually believe that Kevin Durant just wants to hoop. I do genuinely believe that. But like even his comments last week that I know he's since kind of walked back on Twitter and tried to apologize for, but when he said, you know, like he sees basketball as something that like unifies something and he just wishes the organization or in general, they had stayed quiet about the Kyrie stuff. It's like, Come on, man. Like your teammate shared anti-Semitic Holocaust denying content, then refused to apologize for a week. And you think just quietly getting back to basketball would have united people? Like that is to me the definition of your head is in the clouds. Like you are not living in the real world. Your teammate is a purposefully divisive clown. And if you wanted to be able to just play drama free basketball, which I believe is at the end of the day, what you want to do, you picked the wrong running mate, man. Like, I know that that's kind of an old thing to talk about now, three years later, but if Kevin Durant's going to keep talking in this way where it's like, man, like, let's just play basketball and keep it drama-free and why did they... I'm sorry, but you should have thought about that before you decided to team up with Kyrie Irving because nothing yeah, or about... thought about it or thought about it at any point during your partnership with Kyrie Exactly, Irving. and this goes back to something I talked about in the summer when the reports of him wanting Nash and Marks fired came out. Where it's like, okay, that whatever, you know, players players do that. They make demands, especially when they're trying to get out of town. But the idea that he looked at it is like, okay, well, if these guys are gone, then I'll still stay or I'd want to stay. The way that spoke to me was still that like he still was oblivious to the fact that much, if not all, of the net drama still stemmed from all that comes with Kyrie. And so even his comments again now still makes me feel like he's oblivious to that. You, you can make the argument, and I don't think it's that much of a stretch, that teaming with Kyrie Irving when Kevin Durant, even with the Achilles injury, basically had the world in his hands at his feet in the summer of 2019 was the worst decision of his career. I don't think there's any doubt about right. that in hindsight, right? Like, yeah. But yeah, so also just like the funniest, like there's not been a lot of funny things happening in the midst of this shitstorm, right? Like not very much of it has been funny. Yeah. But Kevin Durant saying that he was shocked when Steve Nash got oh fired God. after spending the summer trying to get him fired was really funny. <laughs> yes, um, it was. And again, t- just keeps going back to this theme for me of like, as an organization, man to man, when it comes to their stars, the front office, they've got their head in the clouds. Like, does Kevin Durant actually think we believe that? When he says that, when the when the thought comes into his head and then the the brain signal send it to his mouth to speak it, does he really think, yeah, they'll believe this, that I'm shocked that the guy I've been trying to get fired got fired? 
I don't know. I don't know if he really thinks about things in those terms or if he just speaks off the cuff. But regardless, I was grateful for that moment of levity because they've been few and far between. And just quickly back to the Odoka thing and you're saying like it it shouldn't have they shouldn't they, they should have been able to recognize what that would look like optically and how the public would react. I mean, really, what I would like to be able to say is, okay. The Nets recognized what this hiring would mean for the women who work in their organization, and that prompted them to reconsider. But I'm just a little bit too cynical about this stuff to actually believe that, because honestly, if that were the case, then they never would have considered hiring him in the first place. So Exactly. Anyway, that's where I'm at with that. I kind of don't think they're actually going to end up going through with it. That's my feeling. Neither do I. And to be 100% honest with you, I actually hope... Uh, Jacques Vaughn gets a chance to see where this goes. Like he did a good job in replacing Kenny Atkinson a couple of years ago. I, I didn't think Kenny Atkinson deserved to be fired, but when Vaughn took over, I thought he did an admirable job with that did team. Did a great job plugging DeAndre Jordan into the starting lineup. <laughs> well, that, yeah, I mean, that I don't think that was much like his decision. No, but, I'm just, I'm, I'm yeah. totally joshing. But I, no, I, 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 thought, I, did, I thought he did a fine job that season. And then obviously, you know, Nash gets the look and, now Nash gets fired, Vaughn gets a chance to be interim, but with this kind of looming Udoka cloud uh, hanging over them, they've at least, the three games since Kyrie's been suspended, they've won two of the three. They had a chance to win all three if, if Durant doesn't miss a couple free throws in Dallas maybe, but I, I they've kind of looked spry, and I would just hope that Udo, uh, Vaughn gets the chance to see, even if it's without Kyrie, that he gets the chance to like see what this team can be without him, without that kind of drama around um, before anyone else gets that chance. And then... That just brings me to the way I'll close out all my thoughts, and it's on the Nash firing itself and the kind of like where the Nets go from here. Look, I've said it before. I wrote about it. I don't think Nash like did enough as a coach to save himself regardless. So, uh, like, he was given a very high ceiling job for his first crack in NBA head coach, much better and much higher ceiling than most guys get. He didn't get the job done. So I'm not like, this isn't about shedding tears for Steve Nash being unfairly fired or anything like that. But you also have to acknowledge that no coach or game plan could have steered this team and this particular cast of characters away from disaster. Kyrie was already unreliable from an availability perspective when he got to Brooklyn, became more disruptive and frankly destructive than ever once there, especially in the Nash era. Durant was coming off an 18-month layoff due to a blown Achilles when Nash took over and missed 40% of games in the Nash era. He also requested a trade, then asked for Nash's job, then recanted on both, though it's worth asking why Josiah stood firm behind Nash at all this past summer if he was only going to get a couple weeks of leeway once the season started. Unless Sai's summer stance literally was just to kind of show KD who's boss after the organization had bent over backwards for him and Irving the last few years. And to your a point of a couple minutes ago, even though it was in jest, they bent over for them to the point that Nash's predecessor, Kenny Atkinson, found himself on the hot seat for many things, but among those things, not wanting to prioritize friend of the flaky duo, DeAndre Jordan, over Jared Allen. Allen becomes an all-star eventually, but he was traded as part of a multi-team blockbuster that brought James Harden to Brooklyn while giving Houston control of seemingly every Nets pick from now until the end of time. When Harden soured on Brooklyn in less than a year, at least in part because Kyrie's anti-vax status made him a part-time player on a dysfunctional team, the beard was turned into Ben Simmons, who spent 16 months on the shelf between NBA games. Simmons just came back from a knee injury, still looks like a shell of himself to this point. The Nets stink. They're now without Kyrie Irving, I guess, indefinitely. It was, you know, minimum five games, but I guess it's indefinitely. He's suspended because 
the Alex Jones conspiracy sharing flat earther refused to, for almost a week to just say he's not anti-Semitic after sharing an anti-Semitic film based on a book that, among other deplorable falsehoods, denies the Holocaust happened. But don't worry, though. Now that money is actually on the line, he's sorry. Hashtag dare to be different. So to, I, was Steve Nash good enough as a head coach? Probably not. But guess what? And I wrote about this too. Until the Nets purge themselves of the toxicity rot during the Irving and I guess by extension, the Durant era, toxicity that could soon include Ima Udoka, we both hope not. But until they purge themselves of all that, the next head coach will be as doomed when he walks through the door as Steve Nash was when he agreed to coach this team. And as for Kyrie, if he never plays another game for the Nets, hell, if he never played another game in the NBA, I'd say good riddance. My enjoyment of the NBA isn't going to go down because, you know, I'd albeit dazzling offensive player, but who barely plays half his team's games anyway, and has rarely been even the best player on a playoff team, doesn't play anymore. Entertain a clown, and you become part of the circus. While the Nets during the Kyrie Irving era might as well have rebranded as the Ringling Brothers or Cirque du Soleil. Honestly, look, I offer no, no defense of Kyrie Irving and how he's behaved in this situation, the, the checklist thing makes me a tad bit uncomfortable where I would almost rather them just be like, you know what, I, at this point, Kyrie, it, it's not going to work out and just like wave him rather than like laying out this series of tasks that feels like even just, you know, demanding that he meet with like the Anti-Defamation League that is not an unproblematic organization like they're. Closer to being a pro-Israel advocacy group than they are to being, you know, the civil rights group that they purport to be. And like meeting with Joe Tsai to to determine that he understands all this stuff where like, you know, I don't know that Joe Tsai is like the arbiter of morality and whatever. I don't need to rehash all of because basically a couple of years ago, we talked about all this stuff when the you know, misattributed Hitler quote that shows up in this film, which I have not watched the film. All I know about it is like what I've seen on my Twitter timeline, basically, and what I read about in like the Rolling Stone piece that came out after Kyrie shared it. But if memory serves, that Deshaun Jackson shared the exact same fake Hitler quote on his Instagram a couple of years ago. And that led to, you know, Steven Jackson supporting him and doubling down on it and throwing like his own global conspiracy nonsense yeah. in there on top of it. And we talked at the time and I talked about, you know, like my my family's personal relationship to the Holocaust and like what Holocaust denialism means to me. Like I make absolutely no excuses for that. And, you know, in terms of like conspiracy theories and how damaging those have been to the Jewish people over the course of history, it's just really important to understand that before speaking on it. So I don't I don't need to delve into any of that. Like this this has been covered to death this whole mm-hmm. saga. But that that sort of checklist, I don't know. It just didn't sit entirely right with me. Uh I don't know how it's going to end, whether he's going to go through with it, whether the players union will step in on his behalf. But I don't know. I guess my feeling is I I would have felt better about it honestly if they just washed their hands of the whole thing and been like we don't want to deal with this anymore. Yeah. And sayonara you know good luck in your future endeavors well who knows maybe that is still on the table uh if 
you know, once once either if the PA appeals this and then I don't know, we see where it goes from there, or if they don't appeal and he refuses to, you know, adhere to this yeah. somewhat ridiculous checklist, I guess. Well, uh, I mean, they look, they, they know who Kyrie is at this point, right? Yeah. Like, the, I don't think even him going through all these steps, I don't think fundamentally is going to like change who he no. is or what he or what he believes. So it's like you're either willing to live with that and continue to employ him or you're not like this whole dog and pony show seems like a waste of everybody's time, honestly. And I don't know this whole, it just kind of makes me sad. Like the whole thing makes me sad. I'm not sad for Kyrie Irving or like, I feel bad for Kyrie. He's a grown man. He has agency. He can make his own decisions, but I, I actually genuinely, you know, for all his flaws, like I don't feel like he has malice or hate in his heart. I think he just, he's very misguided in my opinion. And like, he even explains the whole process that led him to this movie in the first place where he like typed Yahweh into a Google search. Like that was how he found it. And it's like, okay, so you're, you're like getting your information in the same way that everybody else is. But the Google algorithm is taking you to like all this lunatic fringe BS because you're clearly already so far down that rabbit hole that like, that's what it's showing you. And I just, he's up there on the dais, like, saying, well, I don't, you know, necessarily support Alex Jones harassing the parents of murdered children. But in this case, it's true. And it's like, okay, well, if this is where you're getting your information from, I would just hope that at a certain point, he would start to interrogate those sources of information a little bit more scrupulously. And no, he's not putting the effort in to do that because he's a fraud. I mean, I, it doesn't need to be. No, I listen, it, and I, I could, I, I like, uh, I don't disagree with anything you said. I just think when it comes to him, like I, I've said it before, like he's shown us who he is. You, like you said, the Nets know who he is. And I just think when it comes to like his sanctimonious stuff, or like you said, thinking like he's going to be the teacher and he's like, he's just a secret truth. I, I just think he's a fraud. And I think people have made excuses for him for way too long. And like, he is who he is. And I think, you know, now he's, as you said, like he's going to deal with the consequences. He should, he's got his own agency. He can, um, his own mental agency, like he could have made better decisions and so be it. Now he can live with the consequences. Yeah. All right. We're going to talk about the three second tier teams in the East after this break. We're going to keep it to approximately 10 minutes per team. We're going to get through this Joe Wolf one. We're still coming in an hour or less. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Scores YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Wolfond. Cavs, Celtics, Raptors. I'll give you uh, free reign here. Where do you want to start? Uh, let's start with the Celtics. Okay. I think what, what's been interesting to me about them, I mean, first of all, I think they look great. Other than the defense. So that's, just- that's been the surprising thing is how far ahead, how far their offense has been ahead of their defense. And I think they're first in offense, right? And, and like 23rd in defense 23rd right in now. defense, yeah. So I would be more encouraged by how good the offense looks, then I would be discouraged by the defense because 
from a process perspective, I remember having this like exact same conversation yeah. early last season when the offense did not look good. And I was like, that's my bigger concern. Even though the defense was like 27th after the first couple of weeks, I was like, process wise, the defense actually looks very sound. I think they'll turn it around. But the offense was was my bigger concern. And it's kind of the same thing. Like I watched their defense and I think maybe the one thing I could point to is Horford maybe looks to have lost a half step. And maybe it's just that he's having to play the five full time now and like having Rob Williams behind him. Yeah. will mitigate a lot of those issues. But apart from that, it's like, look, Tatum looks unbelievable at that end of the floor. I mean, at both ends of the floor, obviously. But defensively, I just think as a helper, he's on another level right now. Like the acuity, the help rotations, the rim protection. He's been incredible. Smart is like the same bulldog that he's always been. The The game they played against the Cavs was, I guess, last week. They had him guarding Jared Allen. Like he was the primary yeah. on Jared Allen yeah. so that he could switch onto Garland or Mitchell if either of those guys ran a pick and roll with Allen. And most of the time that just dissuaded the Cavs from using Allen as a screener at all. But in the meantime, it's like Jared Allen, who granted is not like the most imposing post scorer in the league, but he couldn't do anything with, with smart, right? Couldn't even really do anything against him on the offensive glass because of how well Smart boxes out. So he, he to me, is like the same excellent defender that he's always been. And like he allows the Celtics to access this kind of, this kind of like defensive versatility uh, with the types of players that he can defend. Um, Derek White, still the best rim protecting guard in the NBA. You know, Grant Williams, still a, a brick house on wheels. Like I, I don't, really worry about any of it and honestly if you look at their defensive shot profile yes they're giving up all the right kind of shots right i think they're fourth in limiting rim attempts and like third in limiting three-point volume so they're kind of just getting burned by hot jump shooting for the most part uh they don't really force a ton of turnovers i guess that would be another thing but i i guess i'm just not super concerned about how their defense is going to shake out. Whereas at the offensive end, I'm like, wow, they look very good on this yes. side of the ball. And that's that's something I would be really encouraged about. Yeah, and to that point, that is why even among the three second-tier teams, I still have them as a little ahead of even the Cavs. Like we're, we're talking about them together today in this like second tier, but I would still have it as like, you know, Milwaukee one, Boston kind of like one B, and then a tier with the the Cavs and Raps, maybe one or two other teams. I do think the Celts are still a bit better. And yeah, I was going to talk about that too. The defensive shot profile and the fact that they're eventually getting Robert Williams back doesn't have me as concerned about their defense as I usually would with a, you know, title contender being 23rd in defense a few weeks into the season. Having said that, I guess the one concern would be like, okay, as as sound as the defensive shot profile still is, even if you consider like regression to the mean and their defense getting stingier as that regression happens in their opponent's shooting, I obviously it's no secret that like Robert Williams' presence takes them to another level defensively. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that makes me wonder about all that is like, even if you look into the reports, he had a PRP injection in his knee I think around the time the season started, you know, he's had two procedures on that knee since last March. I think they're expecting him back in the second half of the season, like in the new year, like in early 2023. The concern would be is like, does he, does Robert Williams end up having enough time 
to ramp up given that he's had multiple procedures on the same knee, tried to play on it last year. Like, obviously we don't know the answer to that question. And we just, we won't, we can't know until he gets on the court and then we see how he kind of develops over those few months. But that is the obvious kind of looming question here and concern is it's like, okay, their defense will be better than when it's been so far with or without Robert Williams. But to get to the level we saw it last season and to get to the level it needs to be, if they're going to get back to the finals, let alone win the damn thing, they, they need Robert Williams at something close to full capacity. I guess the, the, the counter to that is maybe, well, if the offense is this good and the defense just kind of regresses to the mean a bit, they'll be fine regardless. Well, my counterpoint to that would be he clearly wasn't close to yeah, 100% during last year's postseason. Oh, good point. And statistically, he was still the most impactful defender yeah. on the team. Yeah. So like he was also- clearly dealing with a lot of discomfort in that knee throughout the postseason run, and he still turned their defense from like very good to elite every time he was on the floor. Yeah. They also now have a guy who's in the argument for not that he necessarily wasn't last year, but he's taken another step now. I was going to say they have a guy who's in the argument for best non Giannis player on the planet. Cause Jason Tatum has been, I mean, there are no words to describe what he's been other than to say, take Giannis out of the equation. Cause I think he's been miles ahead of anyone so far this season. Tatum's in the conversation with anyone else who you can talk about being second best right now. Like he's been that good on both ends. He's carried them down the stretch of a couple close games on both ends, made winning plays on both ends. Like his, his start to this year is like just continues to get better. Yeah. I kind of feel like we came into the season wondering, can Tatum firmly establish himself as like a top 10 player in the league? And now I feel like he is butting up into, or is just already firmly in the top five conversation. Yeah. It's the first time he, he's like started this strong. Usually he starts slow, right? And then kind of ramps up. Like this is, yeah. oh, this is what it looks like if Tatum just starts the season that way. It's pretty scary. Yeah, and I think the great sign, like if you're the Celtics or a Celtics fan, is he has seemingly improved in like pretty much all the areas in which he is deficient. You know, it's like sometimes when you see a guy improve, it's that, he gets better at the things that he was already good at, but the blind spots kind of remain the blind spots. And with him, it's like, okay, he has seemingly really improved as an inside the arc scorer and is making much more of an attempt to get to the rim, to access these kind of little push shots that he didn't seem to have in his bag before. He's getting to the free throw line way more than he ever has. And I think the playmaking has actually like taken another small step forward where You know, to me, I think one of the real signs of like a great playmaker, at least like in in terms of like pick and roll playmaking is, are you able to consistently make pocket passes that beat any kind of pick and roll coverage? And I think one of the hardest, maybe the hardest uh, thing to do in that regard is like make a pocket pass that beats a switch, you know, not like a drop coverage, not a hedge where that window is kind of always going to be there, but a switch where it's like, you're really threading the needle when there's just like a tiny, tiny window of space and time where you can make that pass. And that's what I've seen him doing more and more. And I think one of the things with the Celtics offense, which has been cool to see because I think it's always been really successful for them when they've gone to it, but they're just doing it more this season is like using smart as a ball screener for Tatum. Like, He's the guy that opponents are usually going to hide their weakest defender on. 
bring that player into the action. And if they respond by putting two on the ball rather than switching that player onto Tatum and Tatum can make that pocket pass, then Smart's going to have a four on three and he is really good at navigating those situations. So I've liked watching them implement that. I mean, they do it with Derek White as well as a ball screener. And I think Tatum has handled those situations masterfully. And just their offense in general, like it looks a little bit different than last season. That's why I'm encouraged. It's not just that they're shooting the ball really well or they just kind of like caught a heater. They're actually doing things a little bit differently where I feel like there there's a little bit more random off-ball screening action, like some flare screens that they're throwing in in unpredictable ways, different variations of like Spain action. And they're just, first of all, they're shooting a ton of threes. Yeah. Number one in the league in three-point attempt rate, like almost half their shots have been threes. But it's not like they're just out there chucking, right? Like they're getting those threes. The vast majority of them are coming off of the catch, off of dribble penetration and ball movement. Like the process is good relentless drive and kick like it's very inside out and um i think yeah everything on that side of the ball has looked super encouraging so i would say the defense is going to get better the process on that side has looked good the offense you know maybe it won't remain number one in the nba but i think it's going to stay really good and in terms of like the, the dribble penetration brogdon has been like such a good fit there you know like bringing and, and even when they got him we talked about how yeah. that was the element that they needed and he really gives them that. And I think that's been uh, an important part of them, you know, having that kind of attack where, yeah, they're shooting a ton of threes, but that's not coming at the expense of them attacking the rim. Like those yeah. two things have very much gone hand in hand. And I don't even think Brogdon has fully hit his stride yet. I think he's there. The He's come to life these last few games and he is still getting to the rim and doing things for their offense that lead to good offense, whether it's him scoring or someone else. But I don't think he's even fully hit his stride yet in terms of looking for his own shot sometimes. I think he's almost deferring a little too much right now. So even from that perspective, I think it'll only get better. Smart has continued to find a way to be a positive contributor because he does all the little things you need him to do on both ends when the ball's in his hand or when it's not on offense and obviously all the things he does defensively. And he's managed to be that positive contributor despite the fact, especially the first two weeks, I think the numbers have come up a little bit this week, but like he was shooting off. Like even for his standards, if you think about Marcus Smart at his worst, he was shooting awful the first two weeks of the season, could not hit the broadside of a barn and was still easily a positive contributor because of all that he does. Celtics are good. Don't think that's a surprise for us to say. And they'll probably get better as the season goes on, just when you consider the reinforcements coming and how the defense should regress to the mean. All right, Cavs or Raptors? Uh, let's do Cavs. All right. Uh, first, I mean, they survived that early stretch without Darius Garland, who got hurt opening night. They mm-hmm. survived it, thanks in large part to Donovan Mitchell, who, I mean, we both talked about it, how they went from last year being unable to do anything offensively when Garland was on the bench to now it's like Garland's on the bench or sideline. It's like, well, let's just plug in the guy who's been the the carrier and leader of elite offenses every year he's been in the NBA. Mitchell has taken like another step, it seems. And he was already, this is something you and I both talked about when he was in Utah still and, you know, had basically given up defensively and the Jazz were a tire fire towards the end of last year. We still talked about the fact that like, people were almost forgetting how good Donovan Mitchell was and what he means to an NBA offense and how he can almost single-handedly prop up an NBA offense. He doesn't have to single-handedly right now, but he could. And he, you know, without Garland, he carried them. 
And it's so, you know, I made a video about it and everything and like why what he does is so perfect for this Cavs team. It would have been perfect for a lot of teams like the team we're going to talk about after the Cavs. But um, no, the, the Cavs are just so good. Man. And then they get Garland back. And even going back, I think you mentioned that game they played against the Celtics last week. They beat the Celts on, on national TV. That was Garland's return game. Uh, Mitchell and Tatum kind of stole the show down the stretch and were like had this duel down the stretch. Both made big plays. But I thought on balance, Garland was the best player on the court that night from start to finish. And the fact that he did, he, you know, he walked back into the lineup after a couple weeks off and did that. And him and Mitchell look, the adjustment period I thought might be there once Garland got back and they kind of figured out how to manage this together offensively hasn't been as bad as I thought it might be. Mobley offensively has had some weird games, but defensively he's still been a beast. Jared Allen's just devouring everything in the paint. Like, the only, I don't know how big of a concern it is, but the only downside I'd say I've seen to the Cavs through the first few seasons, we talked a little bit about it after our like opening night observations. You know, them not starting Okoro, but more so that Okoro hasn't really done much with the minutes he's been given and maybe doesn't look quite as ready as I or a lot of other people thought he would be to either start or take on a bigger role on a better team. They're starting Levert. They, you know, They've gone to like Dean Wade is getting more minutes in the core off the bench. And I just wonder if, if we're talking about this team as a potential like title contender, which they have played up to the part of being early in the season is if Okoro isn't what we thought he could be yet, do they have a guy who can be the like big wing defender that you need in the play? Like, do, do they have that kind of guy, that forward, that wing, whatever you want to call him, that can get that job done? Or is that not as much of an issue? Cause it's like, between Mobley and Allen, these guys are mobile and versatile enough that it doesn't have to be someone that looks like them physically who they're guarding. And so it doesn't matter that they don't have a quote unquote big wing defender. Cash, have you watched Dean Wade this season? <laughs> it's not a joke. Like he's, no, I know he's, he's good. the he's answer. Good. All right. I mean, I, I like him. I think he's good. I don't, I don't know if I would have called him the answer to this, but I also, based on the results for through the first few weeks, I can't disagree with you that he looks like the answer. Because, like, I came into the season not feeling like Okoro was really ready for that, and that being my chief concern with this Cavs team, where it's like, wow, this backcourt looks really dynamic and really offensively potent. And that frontcourt, as we've already seen, is just incredible, like, stymieing, versatile defensively. It's just, what do they have in the middle to kind of bridge those two elements? And, you know, we, we wondered about Okoro, we wondered about... Lavert and Lavert's looked pretty good so far this mm-hmm. season. We can talk about him. Uh, I wondered if maybe Lamar Stevens, who's you know athletic dude, like showed some offensive pop toward the end of last season. Maybe he was the guy who could step up. But Wade has been the kind of perfect connective piece where he can like I mean he moves his feet really well defensively. Like he can tackle those sort of big wing assignments. He's shooting the hell out of the ball. Um, and I guess you could wonder, you know, if the shooting tails off, does that mean that he can really no longer serve in that capacity? Like, is that going to be especially damning for him if he's just not shooting the way that he is right now? But I don't think so, because I think there's more to his offensive game than just that. Like, I think he's got some real connective playmaking chops where the ball doesn't stick with him. He's not going to like record scratch out of semi-open shots like if the shot's not there he can put the ball on the floor he'll make the next pass he keeps the chain moving and 
I I honestly think yeah, like the the floor there is pretty high to the point that he can kind of be the answer to that question for them. Like long term, is he the ideal answer? Maybe not, but I think right now he is more than serviceable in that role. And then I think Levert, like what what he showed while Garland was out, was really impressive to me because the last couple seasons I've been very underwhelmed by him as a playmaker. I think he's a good passer, but he just has rarely been an especially willing passer. Yeah, he's got a lot of tunnel vision. Totally. And like it's not like not not a willing passer and and not an unpredictable passer. Like right. the, the passes that he makes are like the obvious ones and he telegraphs them and he often only does so as a last resort. But this year, I think especially like his pick and roll passing, he's been using his big man a lot more than I feel like he has in the past. And I thought, especially with Garland out and them needing that playmaking lift from a guard other than Mitchell, he really stepped up. And, you know, defensively, I think he's really battling in a way that he hasn't in the past. I think that's mostly on the ball where he's shown improvement. Like off ball, he still gets lost or falls asleep a lot of the time. But on ball, he's been very solid. So that's huge. I still see him more as... Like with Garland healthy, that feels like the perfect sixth man for them. Yes. Um, and especially because he's made such good use of those ball handling reps as, you know, not only a scorer, but as a playmaker, that just makes me feel that much better about him as somebody who could kind of captain second units. And granted, like they're going to stagger Mitchell and Garland. So one of them will probably be out there with him anyway. But I just like that fit better than him with the starters. Uh, and I would prefer because like I think they've had Wade coming off the bench with with Garland back yes so I think to me and we talked about this after opening night uh and I said you know I would start a Coro instead of Levert but I feel like you know Wade has clearly leapfrogged him now in the depth chart where I would still want that to be my starting alignment with Levert coming off the bench uh rather than him starting despite how well he's played this casting to me has between the way the roster has been constructed and then what we've actually seen in practice on the court, they have a path to being elite on both ends. And it's, I mean, it's already showing in the results. They're fourth in offense and second in defense. The defense I think was a little bit more predictable. The offense, or I don't know, maybe you'd flip that actually, because with, with uh, Mitchell and Garden, maybe you thought like Allen and Mobley would have to cover for too much. No, but I, the fourth I, on offense is more surprising to me for sure. Yeah, even though they've got these two dynamic scores, I think making it all work, and again, especially when Garden missed two weeks, uh, is somewhat surprising, but also, again, not that it was all him, but a very much a testament to what Donovan Mitchell brings to an NBA court on the offensive side of the ball. And by the way, I had tweeted this last week too. It's like, you know, maybe Jazz fans w- won't want to talk about this or hear about it, and I can understand that, but... For the most part, Donovan Mitchell's played his ass off defensively. It doesn't mean he's always been good defensively this season, but it is like when he hasn't been good, it really hasn't been an effort thing for like he's stepped up defensively in ways that we have really haven't seen him even try to in a few years. So that's got to be encouraging for the Cavs if they were of the belief that look, if we get this guy in an environment that he wants to be again, thinking positively, we're competing, like that he will dig down defensively. So far, the early indications are that the Cavs making that bet pays off because they look great. But yeah, they, they look like a team that easily has a path to being an elite on both sides with the type of 
I don't know if you remember this, but at the end of the playoffs last year, after the finals, we did an episode where it was like our biggest takeaways or like what we learned. And one of the things I said after that was like, you know, I, every year I talk about teams as like fringe contenders. I know maybe this team and what I like promised myself after last year's playoffs was like, I will no longer consider a team a contender in any light unless I am 100% confident that they have a, call it a championship level shot creator, at least one of them. And the path to an absolutely elite defense. Well, the Cavs check both those boxes and it's played out like that early in the season. So got to be thrilled if you're a Cavs fan. Yeah. I think this is why both you and I were incredulous at the idea that the Cavs had like overpaid for Mitchell or that (laughs) the Knicks like dodged a bullet by not putting everything on the table to get him where we're like, this is a 25 year old offensive superstar with who has multiple years of team control on his contract with three years of team control who has been the engine of one of the best and in some cases the very best offense in basketball over the last like three years like what are we doing here and i just i it's it's so funny to see people like surprised by how well he's playing this season it's like i don't know if you've been paying attention for the last few years you know he is i i special offensive talent and yeah maybe like the 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 defensive come up was hard to see coming i felt like it's been surprising to me too but i certainly felt like he had more to give than what he showed in like the playoffs for utah last year but yeah he's really been making an effort you know like fighting hard to get around screens and stay attached and uh even on switches battling bigger guys like he's been great um and then on offense i mean I just feel like he's toying with defenses sometimes. Like he's penetrating at will. He's playing with pace, but also with control. Like he's he's always making the right reads after drawing two to the ball. And his passing has pretty much been on point. He, he's shooting the lights out. Like, and, and then again, with like his fit with Garland, which is exactly the thing that I pointed to why like I had no concerns about their offensive fit. They're both so good at playing without yeah. the ball and they play yeah. so well off each other where... Like now you can really use both sides of the floor, right? Like they can drive and kick to each other and, you know, flow from primary to secondary pick and rolls and they can punch the gaps that they open up for each other. Like it's, I think it's just a perfect offensive fit. And the fact that they're so far making it work like gangbusters defensively is just a fantastic sign. Yeah. And even to your point about like, maybe weren't paying attention if you're this surprised by what Donovan Mitchell's doing on the offensive. And yeah, I think I think if you are that surprised by what he's doing offensively, you're telling on yourself a bit and maybe weren't watching the Jazz enough and were using them more as just like a team to dunk on all the time for, for the lulls, you know, because offensively the track record was already there. Like there's yeah. nothing to be surprised at um, with Spider. And I'd also say, yeah, if, you, if you're surprised at all by what the Cavs have done to start the season, uh, you need to listen to Pound the Rock more and you need to subscribe to the Scores YouTube channel because I told you, I, I had a video telling you exactly how this was going to go. Yeah. No, I, and in terms of, and in terms of like, just don't hold me to always being right because I'm definitely not. In terms As of, we'll, the, fall, we'll tell you the defensive security blanket, you know, sort of behind uh, what we thought was going to be a fairly porous point of attack defense. It hasn't really been so far, but even so, Jared Allen holding opponents to 45% shooting at the rim so far this season and I I mentioned this all last year right like having two versatile bigs out there at the same time just allows you to do so much defensively and uh and the Cavs are really showing that like they can play any style 
and feel comfortable no matter what they're doing, that there's always going to be at least one of those guys back there. And just in general, I think the versatility of their bigs lets them do interesting stuff on both sides of the ball, not just the defense, but like think about how much connective passing they have, you know, among their, their front court rotation from Mobley to love uh, to Dean Wade. Like I mentioned, like it just allows them to do a lot of, you know, ornate stuff with their sets offensively. And obviously, like I said, defend in kind of whatever way they choose. We can wrap this up uh, talking about the team that, well, up until the uh, Cavs blew a 13-point lead in the final five minutes against the Clippers mm. last night, I was going to say the team that handed Cleveland its only loss on opening night, and that's the Raptors. I, I think maybe the way we can talk about the Raptors is I'll ask you a question. I'll, I'll talk about them a bit, and then I'll ask you a question. And So the Raptors are 6-5, and five, but pretty decent considering how tough their opening few weeks schedule has been the fact that they haven't really had Siakam and Fred Van Vliet in the lineup together enough they had them for the first five or six games Van Vliet you know sits a few games with a sore back Van Vliet comes back in the first game Pascal Siakam missed with a strained groin so I think all things considered six and five is definitely uh, a good start for the Raptors in terms of how they've looked they're one of four teams uh, in the top 10 on both ends. Now, some of that is juiced by the fact that they absolutely throttled the Hawks and Spurs by a combined like 73 points or something in the span of a few nights. That really juiced their offensive numbers. Um, and so right now, I think their offense is 10th. But again, in those two games, especially the way that they turned the Hawks and Spurs over and turned those turnovers into easy points in transition, which is not uncommon from them in general, but... I've talked about their defensive rebound improvement this season where it's been a revelation. Last year, 23rd and one of their undoings. This year, for a while, it was league leading. It's down to fourth, and it's actually really slid with Siakam gone because he was doing a really good job defensive rebounding. But uh, Siakam, you know, I talked about Tatum playing as well as anyone non-Giannis. Siakam was pretty much in that conversation as well until he got hurt. Hopefully, he's not out too, too long. Put it all together. What you've seen from the Raptors so far, the offense maybe looking better than some thought it would. The defense, I'd say the defensive results catching up to the defensive abilities a bit more than they did last season. What Christian Coloco, their rookie second round pick, the only seven footer on this roster, has done for them defensively in terms of being that true seven foot rim protector and maybe how that's allowed a bit more freedom on the perimeter. To put it all together, the question I was going to ask you is, Coming into the season, you were of the mind that the Raptors would maybe take a step back, but more so just struggle to replicate what they did last season. And you thought that was a reason they would maybe take a step back, maybe even fall into play in territory. The question for you is, based on what you've seen through three weeks, do you still feel that way? Or are you more confident in their ability to not just replicate last year's success, but maybe even build on it? Yeah, no, to be clear, I, I actually never said that they would take a step back or I thought they would. Like, I All think right, my bad for putting words in your mouth. It, I I did tab them as a candidate for underachievement, but that was only because I, I had the sense that everyone was expecting them to take this big leap forward. And I thought this might be more of a season in which they plateaued a little bit. And there's been a lot of encouraging signs. I mean, first and foremost is the fact, like I came in saying, okay, they were plus seven in shooting possessions last year. That feels like it's going to be really hard for them to replicate in terms of just a formula for success and a way to overcome some of the shot-making limitations. And a couple things on that front. One, the shot-making limitations don't really seem like limitations right now. Because of the way the Siakam came out of the gate, 
and obviously they're going to be in tough to to paper over his absence while he's on the shelf. And I that's another one where I worry about what it's going to look like when he comes back because uh, groin injuries, adductor injuries, like they're just very tricky. And I remember back in 2019-20, another season where Siakam just started like gangbusters, then had a groin injury and that kind of derailed his season a little bit. So I, yeah, I, I worry about that a little bit, but he was shooting the hell out of the ball, especially from mid range and like had just incredible touch from floater range. I'd never worried about Van Vliet's shot making, but like you're seeing guys like, like Scotty Barnes, OG Ananobi, like those guys are really shooting the ball quite well and also creating for themselves. And so I'm, I'm not nearly as worried about shot creation and shot making as I was coming into the season. And then you look at the the possession differential that I w- was worried they were going to struggle to replicate. And now instead of being plus seven, they're plus nine. Like, I, I just, like, can't wrap my head around how well, they managed to, to sort of, like, game this out. And as you tweeted last week, they've hacked basketball. <laughs> in this particular area, it seems like it because essentially... I mean, until recently, actually, like their their offensive rebounding had fallen way back toward the middle of the pack. And I think even before, uh, it might have been before the Bulls game where they where they grabbed 23 offensive rebounds, they were actually in the bottom 10 in offensive rebounding. Now they're up to eighth, uh, powered in large part by that game against the Bulls where they grabbed 23. They're up to eighth in offensive rebounding, but as you mentioned, they're now a top five defensive rebounding team. They turn opponents over at the highest rate in the league. They take care of the ball on offense at the third best rate in the league. So you take all that together. They clean their own glass. They dominate on their opponent's glass. They turn their opponents over, but they never turn it over themselves. And they're getting an average of nine extra shooting possessions per game. And then, yeah, you couple that with the fact that I think in general, their defense has just looked a little bit more functional. And you mentioned Coloco. I think that's a perfect illustration of how almost any like mobile seven footer can really unlock something for them defensively. They just didn't have access to last year. And that's why I and I know a lot of other people on Raptors Twitter were really hoping that they would find like a real like traditional rim protector to anchor that chaotic defensive scheme. And I think Coloco still raw in a lot of ways, but he has looked like a hell of a rim protector so far. And I wonder if that will demonstrate to them that, oh man, if we go out and get somebody like, you know, Miles Turner or Jakob Pertle, that could really take our defense to another level. Or whether they look at Coloco and are like, no, this is the guy. <laughs> and and he is just going to be that seven footer that we rely on in the middle because I, he's still definitely a couple years away from being a, a finished product, especially on offense, but also on defense. Because, you know, as much as I think the backline rotations are really solid, the ball screen coverage could definitely still use some work. And I feel like, I, I don't know what the what the price is going to be. Maybe, maybe the price of the brick is going up for Miles Turner after he dropped a 40 spot on the Pelicans last night. And Pirtles obviously started the season very well too. So maybe that's just too rich for their blood, but... I think they should take a long, hard look at acquiring that that type of player. Coloco, um, by the way, sixth in the league in block percentage to the first few weeks. 
Yeah, and he also, like I mentioned, uh, Jared Allen's defensive field goal percentage at the rim. I think Coloco's pretty much right there with him at like yeah. 46%. No. He's, he's he, been awesome. He looks uh, potentially special defensively. Yeah. And, and so the other thing I'll say is, so first off, Van Vliet was out, right? Like he missed a couple yeah. of games with, I, I can't remember the injury. That, sore that, back, right? sore like look back stiffness, I think. Right. Some t- tight back, yeah. While he was out, I was really impressed with how good the offense looked with Siakam and Scotty Barnes as like primary creators. I was like, well, this is a great sign because, you know, ball handling and creation was a big worry for this team coming into the season. They were over-reliant on Van Vliet to do that for them last season. And now seeing what they were able to do with him out of the lineup, very encouraging. Then Van Vliet comes back, but Siakam simultaneously goes down, which is a shame, but it also shows, you know, they they lose Siakam, who had been their primary creator even when Van Vliet had been healthy and had proved more than up to that task. Van Vliet comes in and very much, I think, reminds people that he can still do this at a pretty high level. And as much as, you know, I know everybody's really excited about, about Scotty Barnes and his ability to basically function as a point guard on offense, I think there's still going to be some bumps in the road for him in that regard. And we're seeing a little bit of that in these last couple of games without Siakam. But I I think if we're thinking about what this team can look like when it's fully healthy, I just don't really have a lot of those same concerns that I had coming into the season when it comes to, okay, is there enough shot creation here? Like, you know, the half court offense still hasn't looked great. Uh, They're still very reliant on transition. I think they're like blowing the rest of the league away in terms of like transition frequency and efficiency. But I do think there is actually enough here in terms of playmaking, self-creation, you know, ball handling, all the stuff that I, that I worried there wasn't enough of. I kind of don't, don't feel that way anymore. Like the depth is still shaky. That's maybe the one thing I would point to and be like, you know, I don't, I still don't really trust this team's bench. And it would still be really nice if they had like a proper traditional backup point guard. If Malachi yeah. Flynn could do anything for them, you know, yeah. if um, like I badly wanted them to to go and sign Tyus Jones this past offseason because I think he would have been perfect in that role. Like I still think they kind of do need a stabilizer like that, but fully healthy, I guess, like you're just going to have Siakam and Barnes serving as backup point guards and they've right. proved up to that challenge so far. And the one thing I would say is I think the concerns that still exist now where it's more about depth, a backup point or something like that, are much easier to address via the midseason trade market and just much easier to address in general than if the concern was this team doesn't have the type of shot creation they need to compete. You know what I mean? Because that you're not addressing in the midseason trade. You're that's a, that's you either have it or you don't, and you're not finding that because there's a few there's not many guys in the league that can just come into a situation and fix that. And I think the good news, if you're a Raptors fan and for the Raptors, is that the concerns now are much more fixable and addressable, even this season, if they wanted to, Mm. as opposed to something they just straight up don't and can't find. Right. Just one other quick note, just because I haven't mentioned him and he's been unbelievable. OG Ananobi has been, in my mind, one of the best one-on-one, maybe the best one-on-one defender in basketball for the last like three years hasn't made an all defensive team. And maybe part of the reason is he's just like never put up huge defensive counting stats. But as far as, you know, a guy who is able to make 
incredible defensive reads and able to lock guys down one-on-one able to guard basically one through five is now averaging over three steals per game and almost a block per game. So he's marrying the instincts and strength and footwork and balance and all the things that have made him such a good individual defender with outrageous defensive playmaking. And uh, I hope that this is the season where he'll finally be recognized for it with an all defensive nod because he goddamn well better be. Yeah. He's, he's been the best defender on the Raptors and the key to making their kind of high wire defensive uh, scheme work so far. 100%. All right. I think that was a good conversation about those, those three second tier teams in the East. We've already talked bucks and Hawks too. So we're kind of talked Sixers at various points throughout this. So we're already six teams deep into the East early in the season in terms of having good, deep conversations and i'm sure there will be i think plenty. we're due for we're due for a western conference uh conversation I, maybe yeah on our future i thought you're gonna say we're due for a knicks conversation um absolutely all right not. <laughs> let's let's get to make or miss where we alternate shooting our shots with a random take and then we tell each other in 60 seconds or less although it usually runs longer can't this time because i gotta go to an appointment to find out if i have the same hip issue that ruined isaiah thomas's career but we tell each other in 60 seconds or less whether it's a make or a woeful miss so 60 seconds on the clock. Let's go. I'll start us off. Make or miss, we'll find. Late Friday night, Father Time was trending on Twitter after a disappointing LeBron game. Now, he's still averaging roughly 24-9-7, and and obviously the overall production at this stage of his career is still impressive, not taking anything away from the great LeBron James. But his lowest scoring number since his rookie year He's been less efficient than Russell Westbrook this season. The eye test says he's lost some burst and it's perhaps even like affecting his confidence in terms of whether he believes he can get by his man because of it. Um, First time in his entire career that he actually has a negative on-off net differential. His team is doing better with him off the court than with him on. He just missed a game due to foot soreness. Make or miss Joe Wolfon. Father time has finally caught up to LeBron James. Make. Uh, I wrote about last season how I thought that we were finally starting to see the LeBron decline that we've been holding our breath and waiting for for so long, and that it seemed like the other shoe was kind of starting to drop. To me, it was really evident at the defensive end last year, where his offensive game still seemed to be like very, very strong. And this season, I actually think he's been giving more effort at the defensive end this season. And that's contributed to the Lakers being, you know, one of the 10 best defenses in basketball. But now it's like you're really seeing an eat into his offensive ability. And you mentioned, yeah, the lack of burst, like the inability to just sort of like power through guys one-on-one. He's not getting into the rim as much. He's taking way more threes than he ever has before. And he's not shooting the ball especially well either. So this is it, man. This is the LeBron decline phase. And the fact that he can still average 24, 9, and 7 in his decline phase is a testament to his greatness. But unfortunately, yes, father time is catching up to him as it does to everybody. He's had a hell of a run, though. Two decades. I mean, yeah. tip your cap. But, I mean, like, look, if, they were to, if, if we were to vote on Western Conference All-Stars today, would LeBron be an All-Star? Because I don't think he would. Well, he will. He'd get the fan vote. You mean if you took the fan vote out of it? Like, he's going to get I mean, a if vote. you and I were doing uh, our Pound the Rock All-Stars today, I think you easily get to 12 players before you get to yeah. LeBron. Yeah, it's a scary thought, but I think you're right. Uh, okay, my first make or miss for you, Cash. Sticking in the Western Conference, which, as I said, we're overdue 
for a Western Conference convo, and maybe we'll do that on Friday. The Memphis Grizzlies, who are once again making me regret my decision to predict that they will take a step back. The Memphis Grizzlies have the best backcourt in basketball. You know what? Off the top of my head, I'm going to call it... Uh, I think it's a miss because I think I might give the edge to Cleveland right now. Mm. But I like where you're going with this because everyone obviously knows John Morant's name. But Desmond Bain has been phenomenal to start the season. And nearly as good as John Morant, as crazy as that sounds. Like, Desmond Bain's been great. And he has been... I mean, we talked with LeBron about like getting to 12 All-Stars perhaps before LeBron James. I think Desmond Bain has been good enough that if the Grizzlies continue to perform well, as everyone expects them to do, Bain is going to get some all-star buzz this season. Like he is a fantastic offensive player that can score in a variety of ways and, and has helped, you know, keep this Grizzlies team near the top of the West, despite various reasons why every year we come in thinking, okay, they'll take a step back this year. It's Jaron Jackson being on the shelf and how the defense might slip Bain's performance offensively to start the year has been uh, outstanding and a big reason why the Grizzlies haven't fallen off. So I I think it's a miss in terms of whether they're actually the best backcourt in basketball, but I think they're in the conversation and I take nothing away from what Bain has done to start the year. You might have a point on the Cleveland front, but <laughs> yeah. uh, Bain's development track has just been so crazy in like the this short amount of time where he comes into the league and it's like, oh wow, this guy can really shoot off of the catch yeah. and even off of movement. And maybe he's going to be like a great 3 and D weapon for us. And then in year two, it's like, oh wow, he can actually really shoot off of the dribble and maybe we can do yeah. like some more stuff with him with the ball in his hands. And now this year it's like, oh, okay. So he's like a downhill weapon who can get to the rim, who can also make plays for others who like his, his left hand was kind of weak before and now he can easily go left and finish with the left. And He's shooting like 45% on step backs. Like he's uh, become this like all encompassing offensive force in a very short amount of time. So him falling in that draft looks continues to look sillier and sillier by the day. All right. My last make or miss for you this week. So Cam Johnson out with a torn right meniscus actually while we were recording just came out. He'll be out one to two months. So it's not a season long injury. Perhaps take some of the shine off this make or miss question. We teased it earlier. Um, his performance in, uh, early in the season has been a big part of why the Suns haven't missed Jay Crowder really at all, who's been shelved while he and the team figure out his next move via trade is what we all think will happen. But make or miss, Cam Johnson's injury means the next time we see Jay Crowder on an NBA court, it is still in a Suns uniform rather than another team's uniform. I, I would like to call it a make, but I'll call it a miss just because I can't remember. I mean... Maybe I'm just forgetting something, but has there been an instance where a guy has held out, like been away from the team, and then just, I guess it's usually not a situation like this where it's a veteran who right. simply refuses to come off the bench, and then suddenly there's an opportunity to start, and I guess the relationship is not fractured to the point that he and the team can patch things up and he can come back and play for them again. I can't remember a, another situation where anything like that's happened, so... I guess I'll call it a miss just because there's no precedent for it, but I would like to call it a make because I think it would be really funny. And also yeah. I think Jay Crowder could really help the Suns and they very much need him right now. So I, I do wonder now how that situation will resolve itself and whether there is some kind of uh, you know 
damage control or relationship repair that can take place that would allow that to happen. Yeah, as do I. Uh, okay, my last make or miss for you, Cash. I, I chose this one because I know it was a topic that you wrote about, a really good piece about this proposed hard cap that I know you think is a terrible idea, and I'm very much in agreement with you. But given the fact that this is out there, that some owners reportedly want this to be part of the next CBA, my make or miss for you is the desire from some owners to institute a hard cap will prove to be a major sticking point in the upcoming CBA negotiations. I'm going to call it a miss because much like we talked about with <clears throat> the Nets reported potentially hiring Ime Udoka and how the response to that might have tempered their desire to actually do it. I do think it works the same way when it comes to leaking potential like negotiating tactics with CBA stuff. And I think the owners, the, the thing is too, it's not even all the owners that want it, right? The few owners that want it probably already see how unwanted it is. They already see the reports um, about the players telling Mark Stein that, you know, they'd rather a work stoppage than agree to a hard cap. I don't even think they're going to get all the owners on board because even in the Woj report, and it's something I wrote about too, like the idea that it would actually backfire and hurt small market teams, which would, or t any teams in general that are just well run that draft scout develop uh well those teams could be hurt by hard cap so i don't even think all the owners would be on board so terrible idea and i think it's so terrible that the owners won't be willing to die on this hill and let it be such a sticking point that it even potentially threatens like a labor stoppage or anything like that because nba business is too good right now 29 of 30 teams turned a profit except for the nets the, you know, franchise valuations are up 15% year over year. The cheapest or the least valuable team is still worth 1.6 billion. The next media rights deal could be worth as much as triple the current deal, which is already worth 2.7 billion a year. There are things that might be sticking points. I just can't see the owners dying on this hill and letting this become a sticking point when it, there are too many holes in the argument for it. Yeah, especially because the cap and tax system actually works out really well for small yeah. market owners, right? Like yeah. the teams that stay out of the tax get this big windfall from the tax teams who, you know, like it's a revenue sharing system. It Nearly works out well for seven, everybody. The 2022-23 numbers look like, I think 697 million was the Woj report. So you're looking at almost 700 million in tax revenue from 10 taxpaying teams will be distributed to the 20 non-taxpayers this year. The league is already, as we've talked about, as I wrote about, as balanced as it literally has ever been from a competitive balance standpoint this year. The financials, I already just told you, like, any arguments for uh, financial sustainability or competitive balance that you could make for hard cap j make no sense right now. So yeah, that's, you know, I, I'm not going to hear any arguments for the hard cap. I don't think the players will. I don't think all owners will. And so I don't think it's going to be a sticking point. That does it for make or miss. That basically does it for this podcast. Did we stick to an hour? Of course not. But are we going to wrap it up right now? Yes. Fan shout out this week goes to Irwin Van Ramshorst. I guess it could be Irvin Van Ramshorst, but I'm going to say it's Irwin Van Ramshorst who hit me up on Instagram. Uh, Irvin's out in Langley, British Columbia, Canada, just outside of Vancouver. Reached out via Instagram to say he's been listening since he was trying to make sense of the DeRozan for Leonard trade a few years ago uh, and hasn't stopped since. He also said he works with youth and they all get together and listen to the pod sometimes or talk about it after one of our new episodes has gone up if they weren't together when they listened to it uh so erwin first of all 
keep doing what you're doing in terms of working with youth. It's very admirable of you. It's really cool for me and I'm sure for Wolfon to hear that uh, the youth you work with listen to our pod and then you guys talk about it after or listen to it together. So that's awesome. So shout out to the youth you work with. Not sure what the organization's called or anything like that, but shout out to them, to you for doing what you do and for listening and supporting the show and to all of our listeners who, if you have not had a shout out before, we want to give you one. Hit us up on Twitter at Joey underscore double Y-O-U, at Joseph Cacharo. Email joe.wolfon at thescore.com, joseph.cacharo at thescore.com. Find me on Instagram like Erwin did, at joe underscore 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 cash. Let us know what you like about the show, what you don't, how long you've been listening, where you're listening from, and we'll get you a shout out on a future episode. Until one of those future episodes where we tell you it'll be 60 minutes or less and we end up going for 80 minutes, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the rock.